Earlier in the week on Facebook, and there are redeeming features of Facebook, you can find sermon illustrations on there. Earlier in the week on Facebook, I saw this image. It says, end of the world, place your bets. And then it gives some different options. Earthquake, 5%. Media, 2%. Plague, 8%. Human stupidity, 85%. Now, it's a little bit humorous, it's a little bit true, but it's also a significant question, isn't it? How will the world end? What's in store for us in the future? Where are we heading? It's a significant question. And it's perhaps a particularly significant question at the moment. It's fair to say that our world isn't particularly stable right now. We're navigating a global pandemic, political upheaval, wars, famine, coups, environmental disasters. It's enough to make any of us, whether we're a Christian or not, wonder what's in store in the future. How will the world end? Where are we heading? Now, if you've wondered about these questions, you're not alone. These questions have really perplexed humans throughout history. These questions also perplexed the Thessalonian believers in the first century. For the last five weeks, we have been on a journey through the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. If you've never read or heard of First Thessalonians, it's very simply a letter that was written by a church leader named Paul to a young church in the Greek city of Thessalonica, which still exists to this day. And what we've seen so far in this letter is that Paul has been encouraging this young church. They have been faithfully following Jesus despite opposition from those around them. And Paul has been cheering them on. Paul has also been instructing and guiding this young church. They were new converts. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have Google. They didn't have Christian bookstores. They didn't have podcasts. They needed some help to know what it looked like to follow Jesus. And so Paul has been instructing them. And last week, we saw that Paul instructed them in the important areas of sex and work. How they can please God in those two areas. This week, Paul continues to instruct this young church, but now he turns his attention to the future. He begins to write and talk about death and about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Now, I wonder what you think about the return of Jesus. I wonder if you think about it at all. I suspect that for many of us, the answer is no. Most of us are pretty busy and we're pretty comfortable. I mean, we're not really thinking about the end of the world. We're just wanting to get through to the end of the week. We're not really thinking about the end of the world because we're pretty comfortable living in the world as it is. And so we're not really thinking about the second coming of Jesus. Plus, I think most of us think of this as a topic for fanatics. This is for people who love the book of Revelation, love to make charts and predictions and and build bunkers and so forth, and so we just tend to want to distance ourselves from those things. 
But the second coming of Christ, while it's been misused, misunderstood, and abused, it actually is incredibly important. It is the gripping conclusion to the story of human history. It's a fundamental teaching of the Bible, and it's an important part of the Christian faith and worldview. The second coming of Christ is incredibly important. And it communicates to us some incredibly important truths. Truths that are relevant for us, whether we are a Christian or not. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're here this morning and you're thinking, what does this topic have to do with me? How could the, the, the return of Jesus possibly be, be relevant for me? Well, the answer is it actually has everything to do with you. See, the second coming of Christ tells you that history, the story of human history, the story of your life, it is moving somewhere definitive. I mean, the Bible tells us that human history has a starting line. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1 verse 1. But it also tells us that human history has a finish line. Yes, I am coming soon, Jesus says in Revelation 22. And so despite what others might tell you that human history is cyclical, it's just going round and around and around like the Gravitron ride at Dreamworld. I don't know if anyone remembers that. I don't know if it's even still there. It's been a long time since I've been to Dreamworld. You get on, you spin around and around, you get six, you, you do a few fun things and you get off, but you haven't gone anywhere. Nor is human history random, meaningless, or pointless. Our final destination is not a dead end. We will be more than just food for the worms. Because the Bible says that human history is moving somewhere and it's moving somewhere purposeful. That you have great value and worth and dignity. That your life matters. That your actions matter. That you are more than just a clump of cells that will one day cease to exist. You are moving somewhere purposeful. And God has told us what this end is. God hasn't left us to wonder about what the future might hold, to wonder about what is going to happen. God has told us what to expect. Now, yes, there are some mysterious details. Yes, we're not told everything. Yes, we don't know when it's going to happen, but God has told us what is going to happen. And he's told us this so that we can live our lives in anticipation of this end, so that we can live today in light of what is to come tomorrow. And this is why it's important for us to reflect on the return of Christ. It's not a peripheral secondary issue. It's a central, fundamental, incredibly important issue. It tells us how the story will end. And it was also an incredibly important issue for this young church in the city of Thessalonica. The theme of Jesus' return, it actually runs right throughout this letter. There is a reference to the second coming of Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, at the end of every single chapter in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. This is why we've called this series People of the Future. Because this issue, the return of Christ, was a big issue for this young church. And it was also causing them some big issues. There was some confusion around the return of Christ. Do you remember last week, some of these believers thought that Jesus was coming back tonight, and so they'd quit their jobs, they'd stopped working, they'd said, well, if Jesus is coming back, I'm not going to work tomorrow. And Paul writes to them, and he says, hey, get back to work, 
Stop bothering people on Facebook. Get, get busy again. Well, it seems that there was also another issue that this was causing them. Some in the church had begun to wonder, well, what about those people who have already died? What about those who have died before Christ comes back? Do they miss out? Are they, are they kind of left in the ground? Do they miss, miss out on God's future? And with these questions swirling about, Paul writes to them to give them clarity and to give them guidance. He writes to them about death and the return of Christ. In fact, the title for today's sermon is about death and dates. And that's exactly how this passage breaks down. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, is all about those who sleep in death. And then chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, is all about the times and dates of Jesus' return. And so that's how we're going to approach this passage under those two headings, about death and about dates. And we're going to see that Paul has something important to, to say to us about each of those things. Let's begin by looking at what Paul says about death. And what we see there is that he says to us, be reassured. Be reassured. Now, these verses in chapter 4 are some of the most reassuring verses in the Bible. These verses have brought comfort to millions of people throughout history. In fact, even for myself, in the last 12 months, I've had to lead the funeral services of, for three of my four grandparents. And these verses have been deeply comforting. But the truth is, we all need these verses because all of us will faith face death, either our own or that of our loved ones. And so we need to know what the Bible has to say to us. And here's how Paul begins in verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. We don't want you to be in the dark. We don't want you to be ignorant. We want you to know about those who die in Christ. Now, why does Paul want them to know this? Look at what he says as he goes on. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now notice, Paul doesn't say, so that you do not grieve, full stop. It is not wrong or unchristian to grieve. It is deeply human and natural to grieve the loss of a loved one. Jesus himself wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It's not wrong to grieve. And that's why Paul doesn't say, so that you do not grieve, full stop. Paul writes for a different reason. He's okay with us grieving. It's okay to grieve, but he says, I don't want you to grieve hopelessly. I don't want you to grieve without hope. That's what he says there, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, is that a bit harsh? Is it true that the rest of mankind really have no hope? Well, in Paul's day, there were a few Greek philosophers that did what they do. They philosophized about the immortality of the soul. But really, there was nothing in, in the literature of the day that could be described as hope. There was certainly nothing like you read in 1 Corinthians 15, which says, where, O death, is your victory? There was instead a general kind of hopelessness about death. Death was final and so grief was overwhelming. And I think it's fair to say that not too much has changed. 
there is still, broadly speaking, a general hopelessness about death. It is the the greatest enemy to be avoided at all costs. And I think that this is why at non-Christian funerals, you'll hear vague kind of ideas and vague kind of notions around they're in a better place. They're looking down from above. They became an angel and got their wings. I mean, what are these ideas based upon? What are they founded on? And the answer is not much. But I guess the question then becomes, well, what is the Christian hope based on? What is Christian hope built upon, founded upon? Do we have reason to hope? Well, this is what Paul goes on to to give us in verse 14. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The Christian hope is founded on Christ. Not on our experiences or our feelings, not on our wants or our wishes, not on a mystical figure of our imagination, but on the Christ of history. The Jesus Christ who really did live, who really did die on a Roman cross, and who according to the Bible and according to good historical evidence really did rise again. Christian hope is founded upon the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is not a pie-in-the-sky mystical claim. This is verifiable information. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into the, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, but let me just ask you this question. What if it is true? What if Jesus Christ really did rise from the grave over 2,000 years ago? Well, if it's true, then it tells us that Jesus is exactly what we need. You see, we need an expert on the afterlife. We need someone who has gone through and come back. We need someone who can tell us what it's like. And the only person that's made this claim and the only one with the credentials to back it up is Jesus. Without him, we're in the dark. And the Bible says if we will take Jesus seriously if we will listen to him, if we will believe him, trust him, then like Jesus, death will not be the end for us. It will be not a full stop, but a comma on the sentence of our lives. And this is why Paul says three times, he describes death as like going to sleep. Did you notice that? Those who have fallen asleep in him. Now the point is not that you will slip into a state of unconsciousness, The point is that sleep is temporary. I mean, when you go to sleep at night, you wake up again in the morning. When you die in Christ, you will be raised from death. You know, there's a poet and a priest from the 1600s named George Herbert, and he has this brilliant line on death. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. You see, because of Christ, when we are buried, he's saying we are merely planted because there is a day coming when we will rise again even more glorious and more great than when we went in. And so the Christian hope in the face of death is that because of Christ, it's merely temporary. It's not a full stop, it's a comma. Now let me ask you, if if you're not a Christian, don't you want this to be true? I mean, I think that this is why we come up with these euphemisms about death. 
going to a, a better place, looking down from above. It's because we don't want death to be the end. We want there to be more. And Jesus says to us, there is more than you could ever imagine if you will listen to me and trust me wholeheartedly. And this is why each time I've read those words of committal, when the body of my grandparents have been lowered into the grave, this is why I've been grieving deeply, but not hopelessly. Because I know that the the coffin, the grave, the ground, it cannot ultimately hold them. And there is a day coming when, as Jesus says, and when Paul says here, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so this is the Christian hope in the face of death, and this is why we can be reassured. There is a day coming when Christ returns and the dead will rise. And Paul then begins to tell us a little bit more about this day in verse 16. This is what he says. He says, for the Lord himself, it's not gonna be a representative, it's not gonna be a substitute, it'll be Jesus himself, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so what's gonna happen on that day? Well, Paul doesn't tell us everything here. He doesn't say anything about judgment, about the resurrection body, about the new creation, which we find in other parts of the Bible. The focus here is on the personal, visible return of Jesus. And what's it going to be like? Well, apparently it's going to be loud. Loud enough to wake the dead. There's going to be a command, a voice, and a trumpet. Now, we're not meant to get bogged down in the particulars. What's the command going to be? Whose voice will it be? How many trumpets are we talking about exactly? The point is you will not miss it. You will know that it's happening. You see, Jesus' second coming is not going to be like his first coming. Do you remember how that was announced? By the angels to a few shepherds in a field. Jesus' second coming will be sudden, visible, unmissable, unmistakable, and unavoidable. And that's the point And on that day, those who have died in Christ will rise with him. And so I guess the question then becomes, well, what about those who are left? What about those who are still alive on that day? This is what Paul addresses in verse 17. He says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now here, Paul pictures the greatest reunion of all time. I mean, this is better than the Friends reunion. This is better than Led Zeppelin in 2007. This is even better than Alfie coming back to lead Queensland in 2001 to State of Origin victory. This is the reunion of all believers from all of history with Christ forever. What a glorious and beautiful vision this is. This is a happy vision. And this is why Paul ends this section in verse 18 by saying, encourage one another with these words. When you're tempted to give up, to walk away, this vision, these words can give you encouragement to keep going because it's a beautiful vision. And yet, this is also a vision that has caused some confusion among Christian believers. 
I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but some people through history have suggested that this passage, along with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, has taught the idea of what's known as a secret rapture. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking a secret what now? This is a little bit of an in-house discussion, but I think it's worth addressing because this is one of the main passages where it springs from. Now, what is the rapture? Well, it's this idea that there is a time coming when all believers will be raptured, which literally means to be caught up, to be scooped up, and they'll be secretly snatched away from earth and taken to heaven. And all those who are not believers, they will be left behind on the earth and, and life will continue. And this will happen at some point prior to Jesus' return, and it will happen suddenly and mysteriously. So let's just say you're a believer, you're driving your car, the rapture happens, poof, you're gone and, and, and no one's driving your car anymore. Now this idea first emerged in the mid-1800s. It was proposed by a man named John Darby. Before him, it had never appeared in Christian theology or doctrine. It was popularized in especially America. There was all kinds of movies and books, uh, most popularly the Left Behind series. But the question we have to ask is, is it biblical? Is this what the, the Bible is teaching us here? Well, when we look at Matthew 24, and, and we won't kind of read the whole passage yet, but what you see there is that Jesus is talking about the day of his return, his second coming. And he says that it will be like what happened during the days of Noah and the flood. Now, what happened during the days of Noah and the flood? Well, people were just going about their business. They were eating, drinking, and getting married when suddenly and unexpectedly, the flood came and they were swept away. They didn't see it coming. And Jesus says that the same thing will happen at his return. People will be going about their business, doing what they do, when suddenly and unexpectedly, he will come and they will be swept away by God's judgment. This is Jesus' point when he says in, in Matthew 24, he says, two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, the taken and left language has nothing to do uh, about um, believers being secretly raptured and others being left behind on the earth. It's referring to the separation that will happen when Christ returns in judgment. Some will escape God's judgment Others will be swept away by it, taken by it. And this is the same thing that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, which, remember, is talking about the day of Jesus' return, which, remember, will not be secret. It will be visible, sudden, unmistakable, unavoidable. And so when it says that believers are caught up in the clouds, it doesn't mean that they're being secretly snatched away. It means that they escape God's judgment. And they take their place next to Jesus along with all other believers. And so my understanding of these important passages is that they don't teach the idea of a secret rapture some prior to Jesus' return. Rather, they teach us that the return of Christ will be sudden, unmistakable, unmissable, and unavoidable. And it will bring about a separation between those who trust Christ and those who don't. And so the question that we really should be asking ourselves is, well, how do I prepare myself for that future? How do I live today in light of Christ's return tomorrow? And this is exactly the topic that Paul turns to next. He's talked about death and he's told us to be reassured. And now he begins to talk about dates and the times of Jesus' return and he says to us, be ready. 
be ready. Now we'll move through this section a little bit quicker because we've already touched on Jesus' return, but there's some important points here in this section. And the first is the timing of Jesus' return. When will Jesus come back? The age-old question, and so many people throughout the ages have tried to answer it. They've made predictions, and let me tell you, they've all been wrong. The simple fact is we don't know, and we're not supposed to know. It always kind of amazes me that Jesus says to us very clearly in Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know the times or dates of my return. And people somehow respond to that and go, well, thank you, Jesus, but I'm going to work it out anyway. We're not supposed to know. We cannot know. And in fact, this is exactly what Paul goes on to say in this uh, section in 1 Thessalonians 5. He compares the return of Jesus to two different metaphors. The first, he says, is it's like a thief. Look at verse 2. He says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, what is the one thing that a thief does not do? They do not tell you that they're coming. They don't call you up during the day and say, hey, I'm thinking about uh, robbing your place tonight about 11 p.m. I think I'm going to come through the laundry door. That looks like the, the weakest spot. I'm really going to be having my eyes out for laptops, jewelry, you know, maybe even some car keys. That'd be good. So, yeah, I might see you tonight. It's not what they do. And you see that Jesus is not going to call ahead and tell us that he's coming. He's told us that he would, and we ought to be ready. The second metaphor that Paul uses is labor pains. Look at verse 3. He says, while people are saying peace and safety, it's not going to happen, everything's fine, you're crazy, Jesus isn't coming back. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I haven't experienced it firsthand, but I've been there a few times and when labor pains begin... That baby's coming out one way or another. I mean, you can't escape it and you can't avoid it. It's not like an appointment at the dentist that you can cancel. It's happening. And it's the same with Jesus' return. You cannot escape it and you cannot avoid it. It doesn't, at the end of the day, really matter what you think about Jesus. You will stand before him. And you can either stand before him forgiven, dressed in his righteousness, we can stand before him in your own. He will return unexpectedly like a thief and like labor pains, he will come inescapably. And so I guess the question is, well, what does this mean for us? How should we live in light of this? And this is what Paul goes on to tell us in verses four to 11, and he essentially says, be ready and stay faithful. Be ready and stay faithful. He says, stay awake, stay alert. Jesus has brought you into the light, so live as children of the light. Put on the, the clothing of faith, hope, and love. Keep trusting Jesus and don't give up. Keep loving one another and do not stop. And keep your eyes on the future and do not fear. Be ready and stay faithful. And so there's a challenge here for us, isn't there? Are we awake? Are we alert? Are we wearing the clothes of faith, hope, and love? There's a challenge here for us to ask ourselves, have I fallen asleep at the wheel of my faith? Or am I awake and am I alert? But there's also a great encouragement here for us. 
Because Paul's main point here is not to berate us, not to beat us up, but actually to build us up, to encourage us. That's how he finishes the passage in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Paul doesn't want us to dread the future. He doesn't want us to be afraid about the return of Jesus. He wants us to long for it, to look forward to it. Because if your faith is in Christ, it will be a great and glorious day. It will be the righting of wrongs. It will be, your faith will be made sight. Everything sad will come untrue. And so look forward to it. Now, why can we do that with hope? Why can we do that with great assurance? Well, look at what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. He says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has appointed us for this. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Here's the thing. If you want to be ready for Jesus' second coming, you need to grasp what he did in his first coming. See, in his first coming, Jesus came to die for us and he stood in our place on the cross. Why? So that at his second coming, we might stand before him without fault. We might receive life with him forever. There's no better way to put it than this wonderful illustration by the Presbyterian minister, Donald Barnhouse. Donald was driving with his four kids in a car and they were either on their way to or they were on their way from the funeral of their mother and his wife. And Donald wanted to help his kids grieve and they're driving along and at one point he looked up and he said, do you see that truck? Do you see the shadow of that truck? Would you rather be hit by the truck or by its shadow? And the youngest child piped up and said, well, by its shadow and Donald said because Jesus was hit by the truck of death your mother only had to go through its shadow death used to be an executioner but Jesus has made it just a gardener and if you will look to Christ in faith you can look death in the eye and be reassured And you can look to the day of Christ's return and you can be ready. Your judgment is behind you and life is ahead of you. And the future has nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great love and great hope with which you've showered upon us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that because of what Jesus has done in his first coming, we can look death in the eye and be reassured. And we can look to the day of his return and we can long for it. We can look forward to it and we can stand ready for it. And so help us to live, Lord, as you call us to, with the clothes of faith, hope, and love on us, so that on that day we might be found ready and faithful.
and we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.